100%. We always have a choice. Like in the, in the world that you and I live in, we all have a choice. You have a choice to get up and go to work. You have a choice to get out of bed. You have a choice to eat. You may feel like you don't have a choice, but at the end of the day, you do. When it, when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, our life is made up of little choices, and those add up in a big way. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Tanner is a big speaker who shares his big accident, which a few years ago left him blind, from which he rose above to become the person that he is. He, among other things, he's a Paralympic athlete. He has a TEDx talk in the works, which has actually happened since this recording. I indulged in having him share more about his history, part because he's a great guy and he's just fun about all the things that have happened. And when you ask him, he prefers that this accident has happened to him because it led to a better life for him. He speaks about blind spots and how for him, they created opportunity which is the case for any of us. How many of us are waiting for something to get us started? He points out that we can find our blind spots without the world creating a crucible that forces us to it. And for those listening to this, acting for the environment, if you care about it, enables you to act on these things that you've been waiting for without having to have an accident. Tanner's accident didn't create abilities in him. They revealed abilities that we all have. So I hope you enjoy listening to Tanner. I had a great time talking to him in all of these conversations. I think you'll get a lot from it. Tanner, great to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) I love you so much, man. We've had a great time before you hitting record. So appreciative that you want me included in on this awesome adventure. I look up to you tremendously and thanks so much for having me here. I'm really glad to be here. And I've had such a great time meeting you and talking with you. We don't get to talk that much. We haven't met in person just yet, but you're one of the people that in the podcast, I've tried to make myself more open and you made it very easy talking, knowing that lots of people are going to listen to it. So I thank you. And the reason I laughed and the reason you referred to it's, we talked for an hour now and uh, <laughs> we really, oh, yeah, shit. it's been an hour <laughs> and we were talking about baseball and you were having issues with your team. Your team is like a world-class team. But there have been frictions, and we were talking about that and going back and forth in my book and things like that, and also talking about me talking about the growth of this podcast. So a little secret out there for people who haven't been on podcasts themselves, when you hear podcasts, like usually there's this conversation beforehand, and then after you say stop, there's another conversation after a word. And there's this cool like, thing that goes on with podcasters that we all get to know each other. Yes. And you were saying, how many people have you met this way? How many relationships have been like, really awesome as a result of this? Oh, like at least 50 plus. And I am holding you to the vegetable, legendary vegetable stew. (laughs) 
apartment as soon as I'm in New York. But I mean, it's uncanny and it's been international, Asia, Canada, you know, the United States, Europe, the network benefits of podcasting and just connecting with awesome people. It's tough to quantify. And there's this cool behind the scenes piece of it to me that like, we all know each other. Like, did I ask you if you know Joel Runyon? You did not ask me that, but I don't know him. Okay, so people who know me know that I take cold showers every fourth day, and for, at the beginning, it was every day for a month. And he's yeah. the one who influenced that. His sorry, blog of cold shower therapy got me doing that. So he was over for dinner the other day, and it was kind of cool talking about that. And he also knows Srini Rao, and so we were talking about him, and it was kind of like these connections. When, oh, when I first started doing the cold showers, I was living in Park City, and it was over the winter, and there is nothing colder than the water on cold in Park City, Utah, in February, <laughs> like literally shaking. Like, ah. Oh yeah, I bought a digital cooking thermometer so that at the end of my cold showers, I could have the water go into a cup and I put the thermometer in. So my record is 39.9 degrees. Oh my God. Purple fingertips. It was really... <laughs> Then New York might be just as cold as Park City. But. That was when we had this polar vortex that came through. It was like a very cold weather. Now, you know, you, I can make the water hotter, but I can't make it colder. I just get what nature gives me. Right. So in the way that a runner is like, how many, I'm going to go for my personal best or a weightlifter. That's my chance to do a personal best. It's like to go in the coldest water. Weird thinking, but in the mindset of like that, this is your chance. So I, I went for it. Dude, wow. It was really hard. Well, you, well, of course, and naturally you went for it and you did it. So, I mean, purple fingertips, the mental fortitude that it takes to maintain staying underneath a shower of running water until your fingertips turn purple is uncanny, my friend. Well, yeah, the way that I look at it is if you can do that, and look, the risk of injury is basically zero because you can just turn the water, you can just step out of the water. Right. And so actually that water is painful. Normally it's not really painful. The risk of injury is very low. The cost is zero. If you can do that, what else can you do? I look at it as training. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a challenge. Yes. So I'm not sure how, if everybody knows about you. So I will have given an introduction to say a bit about you. But what, okay, so we talked about you playing baseball, but it's not just baseball. What, like, can you tell us about yourself? Like, what makes you special? Yeah, so I was basically just a regular All-American kid growing up, you know, sports, school, and really bored in school. And then when I was 21, I was in a terrible auto accident. I really thought I was just getting my life together. And then it got pulled out from under me in this auto accident. And I wake up in the hospital, you know, back broken, jaw wired shut, and totally blind in both eyes. And then on top of that, I had this brain infection that was killing me, an infection in my sinus cavity, even though the my left eye, the tree hit me in my face and blew out my left eye. They brought the eye with me to the hospital. An infection took that eye eventually. And, you know, from that moment, I caught some words of wisdom from my father. And he said, you know, Tanner, it is always going to be tough, but it could always be tougher. And it's always going to be hard, but it could always be harder. And, you know, from that moment, I realized, you know, I do still have my hands and feet. I still have skills. I still have, thank God, you know, the cognitive capacity to even hold a conversation, let alone move my body through space. And so it's going to be up to me in order to achieve the excellence that I deserve to have, that I'm capable of having, and that I certainly have the potential of achieving. So I went back to school 
started working and one day you know the universe just brought me home earlier than I'd ever been home before I turned on the television and saw beat baseball which is baseball for the blind became and still competing that but it was so successful there that some other local coaches in the know told me about the Paralympic Games so I made that my mission quit school and work and and thought I had this one moment I can always go back to school I can always go back to work but I can't always go back to the opportunity of playing the Paralympics so I did that in 2012 I was very fortunate to represent Team USA in London along the way uh, before then I was um, you know I've always had that entrepreneur fire inside me so I've done various things from having a mobile food kitchen business to selling used cars to a sales business and then a consulting business with food and nutrition and health that was inspired by my time living at the Olympic Training Center and basically just living in sports med and being inspired by how the human body functions and recognizing and seeing all these elite level athletes with all the hormone dysfunction and you know, digging into the research and figuring that out. Went online in 2013 for the first time, published a couple of books along the way. And, um, you know, that's what's going on. And then uh, by the time this airs, I'll have done my first TEDx talk, uh, which I am so grateful to, to have that opportunity. So now that's what I primarily focus on is my personal professional hat is professional speaking. And then my professional professional hat now is as executive director of my blind spot, which is a nonprofit, an NGO nonprofit based in New York that focuses on web accessibility, mobile app accessibility, and employment opportunities for people like me who just happen to have a disability. So that's a lot of stuff. When I first came across you, by the time I met you, I've only known you as an upbeat person who takes on challenges. And the only thing I've seen is a very bright outlook on life, especially toward other people. And if I search Tanner Gers, ever go do it now. Like you're going to find a lot of hits. And <laughs> so I don't know if this is too stupid a question, but is your life better now or was it better before? Is that a question you can answer? Well, you know, you're talking about before the accident. Yeah. It's completely better now. And it took me a while to get to that. It was actually, you know, after, well, after the Paralympics, you know, I had already achieved so much and it wasn't until I did the work on myself. Like I was always kind of motivated, like before I lost my sight, after I lost my sight, I got motivated, but I didn't really value myself as an individual because of my disability, because of the visual impairment until I did like the work on myself. So I, you know, I used to value my life as a sighted individual even though I really, the only thing I'd ever accomplished truly was graduating high school. But now I'm so blessed because, you know, while losing my sight completely changed my life and has put, you know, very difficult number to come up with in terms of like the roadblocks and the struggles and the hardships along the way. But I wouldn't be the person I am today without that. And the person I am today is far superior than the person I was before losing my sight. So most people would think, I don't want to lose my sight. And probably you didn't want to lose it either. But you referred to a period of change that was difficult. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like there was some kind of struggle that you went through. Oh, yeah. To learn about yourself, to learn your values, to learn, like, what was it? Can you describe the struggle? 
Yeah. I mean, it was literally about self-worth and, and deserving, you know, I, when I was sighted, when I was younger, I would volunteer at Easter seals. And so I was familiar with, you know, the, and this was right around the time that the ADA was established. Right. So, you know, the ramps that we all see today, the handicapped parking spots, that wasn't really law. And so when we went out in public, you know, we would bring ramps with us so that these individuals in wheelchairs could, using wheelchairs, could get in the door. And, you know, after I lost my sight and I began to learn how limiting things can be with regards to access or with regards to, you know, antiquated perceptions that the society holds and that individuals hold about individuals with disability, that how closed the mindsets were that permeated and penetrated my own consciousness, my own thoughts and beliefs about myself. And so when I was, when I got that motivation from the words of wisdom that my father gave me, I had yet to really step out into the public light and see, experience the the wrath, as it were, of other people's fears being, um, you know, about what would be possible for them if they were in the same, that's the only thing I can quantify is that people were judging me based on the fears that they have about what their life would be like in my own situation at a deep conscious level. I don't think they thought that. I think that it was just a reaction. And then so over time, me experiencing that and just having to break through wall after wall after wall and barrier and barrier and barrier, I ended up you know, developing this low level of self-worth and deservingness and basically rising up to the expectations that society had for me, which was zero. And then I had, you know, just looked, it's so funny. I was dealing with an injury while I was living at the Olympic training center. And uh, so I had a lot of chance to read and, and I was, you know, looking at, you know, Eastern philosophies and Kundalini yoga and, you know, really starting to work on myself. And I'll never forget it. I was delivering a speech at a school in San Diego. And the message that I was delivering was, is like, you're more than what's on the outside. Like, it doesn't matter if you're tall or short, thin or fat, you know, blind or not, or even if you wear an eye patch, which, you know, I often wear an eye patch, I'm wearing one right now. And the big thing at the beginning of the speech was I had my white cane that a blind person uses. And I threw it on the ground and I said, I use this, but it does not define me or what I'm able to do. And so I threw it on the ground and I didn't use it for the rest of the talk. And yet I'm walking around the stage and it's like an elevated stage. At the end of the talk, the first question I get was, you know, what's under the eye patch? And I was so pissed. I was like, nothing I said resonated. Nothing of what I said is, is hitting you. Nothing what I said is touching you. And so I'm explaining this to the massage therapist a couple of days later. And he goes, you know what, man? And he said, why didn't you take it off? Like, why didn't you just show him? Like, you're more than that. And so for days, I thought about what I would say when I take it off. What I would say when I'm starting to feel the questions. I mean, I had a tan line, a big tan line across my forehead from where the eye patch goes. People know that it's not there. It's not like something that's just going to not be noticed. And for the first day that I did it, I finally built up the courage. I had like, I literally practiced uh, running through the language myself. You know, what would I say? What, you know, what about this question, that question? And for the first day, no one said anything, not one question, not one comment. And 
that was life-changing for me. So these things don't define you. What does define you? It's how you lead your life. You know, it's a basic fundamental principle of leadership, right? Like lead by example. And so for me to just like, and this is what I'm going to be doing in my TED talk. I got some advice from a professional speaker that uh, some mentorship. And he said, you know what? And I'm meeting him without my eye patch because I normally don't wear it. And uh, in my day-to-day life. And he goes, you know, you know, now that I've gotten to know you better, like it, I don't look at your eye hole as it were, you know, I look at you in the eye, but as a professional speaker, it is very, very important for you to grab your audience right from the beginning. And if people are so focused on your aesthetics, because we're human, if they're focused on that, rather than the words that are coming from your face, you're going to lose them. And I was like, oh, so, you know, now the eye patch isn't so much me hiding behind it and being ashamed of the way that I look. It is a tool that I use to make sure that my message connects better than it would without it. It's like if I'm going to speak in an auditorium, I better use a microphone because I want to make sure everybody can hear me. And the eye patch functions as the same kind of mechanism. Tell me if I'm overinterpreting here, but what you say defines you is not different than anybody else. It's what you do and what, like we all have what we do. Right. And the things that don't define you, everybody's got something. Like the reason why we know what shame is is because we feel it. The reason why we know what anxiety is because we know it. It's like, it's been a long time since I've heard an emotion that I didn't know what it was because I felt them. Right. And you know, my book, I talk a lot about, I was inspired by like Mark Zupan. Do you know Mark Zupan from the Paralympics in the movie Murderball? Yes. And the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, these guys, look, they went through such hardship. And then the second time I saw it, I was like, oh, it's a great movie because they're great athletes. And I didn't like, it wasn't, they're playing a particular sport that they play, but that's not like, that's just their sport. It's not like, and you know, it's also like Viktor Frankl and Jean-Dominique Bobby, who, who wrote um, Diving Bell and the Butterfly, I felt like they're, it's, they're people doing what anyone can do. Like, Bobby wrote a book, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Like, it's a great book. And I felt like what was great about them is the book and the movie. And the other guy wrote a book too. And these other things are distractions that if, I mean, they are something unique about that particular person. But I have unique stuff about me that I'm saying holds me back, but they're not saying it holds them back. It's just saying it's just part of who they are. Right. And that struggle, I feel like it didn't reveal something special about them. It revealed something that was already there. Hmm. That what am I holding myself back from? Do I need to have a car accident for it to be revealed? Well, I mean, that's, I mean, speaking to the kind of, you know, the theme of the, my upcoming TEDx talk, which is, it's talking about blind spots and how we have them at a societal and individual level. Like the, my ability of achievement now, you know, I guess my blindness has springboarded me into doing it because it provided the opportunity, right? It provided the opportunity. I still had the same level of skill before I lost my sight. I still had the same opportunity to create something 
for myself. And I just didn't. And, you know, me not recognizing that potential, that was a blind spot, right? Me judging myself aesthetically and quantifying my worth or deservedness or ability to change the world because I look different or because I have to do things a little bit differently or I might do them a little bit slower. That's a blind spot. And I relate that back to the audience. I'm saying you as an individual, you uncovering your blind spot, that's how you will become your own superhero. And at a societal level, when we can stop judging people by based on their aesthetic or their skin deep differences, that's when we can create superheroes out of the world, right? When we allow people to, and possibly even guide them to seeing their potential and what they're capable of doing, and then not preventing them from, you know, it's like, could blind people read before Braille? Could deaf people talk before sign language? They could. That greatness is always inside of us. It's inside of you. It's inside of me. We just needed the opportunity to express that. And making a judgment on an individual because of a difference, that's a blind spot. And it's preventing, um, it's how we as a society and individuals write off the greatest assets on this earth. And that's human capital. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So it revealed something that was already there. It gave you an opportunity. And I think that's why in Murderball, that when they ask them, would you, if you could go back and change it, would you? And they say, no, I would not change it. And so you're nodding no right now. Is that, would you also answer the question the same way? I would totally answer the question the same way. I've asked this next question though, to so many people and they have a surprisingly different answer. Like my blindness has made me who I am. And I wouldn't change going blind just for the purpose that I don't think that I would have recognized my potential and I would have stepped into the greatness that I'm each day trying to express to the greatest capacity. But at the same time, now that I've I've attained that equity, that I've grasped a hold of that conceptually and I can take it and I'm taking action on it, (laughs) I know how important vision is. I'm reminded of it every day. So the soon, as soon as I'm able to regain my sight, oh my God, you know, I'm going to get it back. You know, I'm going to take advantage of that opportunity. I would be foolish not to, because I can do what I'm doing now, but at a, at a greater level. And, uh, it's surprising to me at least, and I'm just one man, but how many people who have maybe were born with a disability or, you know, got thrown into this world one way or the other and would just keep things the way that they are. So yeah, I'm going to get my sight back one day. I'm looking forward to that day. But at the same time, I'm not letting the loss prevent me from creating something that I'm proud of. Now, from the perspective of someone like me or people listening, if they want to go through the transition that you did, if they want to learn and grow, learn about themselves as much as you did, Mm -hmm. do they have to go through what you did? Do they have to go through something like that? No, I mean, you don't have to burn your hand on the stove to know that it's hot. 
you know, that's experiential learning, but we can have observational learning by seeing someone else do it. I don't think it's as powerful, but the message is still the same. You know, instinctually, animals are going to turn on that killer instinct when they're backed into a corner. That's all that I really did. And then some deer in the headlights, as it were, some people just get hit by the car and they die or they stay in a a corner and don't come out. I chose to come out of that corner with the killer instinct. But yeah, I mean, it is possible to learn observationally and, and recognize like how I think it gets down to, you know, recognizing the greatness that's inside you, the opportunity, the gifts that you were born with, and then realize or being grateful for it through the expression of taking action. Yeah. I think that like an example of that might be like an Arnold Schwarzenegger or Steve Martin, people who didn't suffer through things, but nonetheless reached the greatest potential in their fields and other fields and in other fields. Those guys are amazing. Absolute legend. Steve Martin and Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, you couldn't have picked two better people who have just dominated, not competed, dominated in the fields that they chose to go into. That's- yeah, multiple fields each. It's like, they dominate one and then move on to the next, dominate that, move on to the next, dominate that, move on to the next. It's like, yep. and as far as I know, they didn't go through crucibles. No. And to me, they're big inspirations because it tells me, I, they take, it's not inspirations, it, it takes away excuses. Because one of the things in my leadership in the environment talk, I often begin it with asking people, you know, are you perfect or do you have room for improvement? If you have my little joke is if you're perfect, then, you know, see me afterwards so I can learn from you. <laughs> That's right. And if you're not, then you probably have role models. And if you have role models, that means you want to emulate them. And so far, 100% of the people have been given the same answer on this one. Are your role models people that got that way because they just sat on the couch eating ice cream and they were born with it? Or did they go through some sort of struggle and have to work at it? And, you know, it's always some kind of struggle. And I say, all right, so you, by your values, you want to improve. You want to change in some way. And the way that the people that you want to be like have gotten there is through some struggle. So you want to struggle. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. And I think a lot of people have this feeling of like talking in the realm of leadership. I think, say you want to be like Nelson Mandela. That's a leader a lot of people want to emulate. Sure. A lot of people will have this idea of, well, he was born under apartheid. You know, the United States is not the best country it's not at its full potential, but at least it's not apartheid. Right. And if I had lived under apartheid, yeah, I would fight against it too. And then I would rise up. Maybe even if I didn't be, reach the Mandela levels, I'd still be more. And he can't really fault me for not fighting apartheid. If there's no apartheid, you can't fault me for living a com- more comfortable life than him. Right. And I point out, if you want to reach a level that you're not at, and you told me, you audience member, that you wanted to reach another level. And you told me that the way to get there is struggle. Well, it happens to be that we live in a time with the environment that things are getting really critical. And this is it. This is your chance to reach your potential. This is a struggle that if you want to reach Mandela levels, you can. If you just want to be someone who does a little bit, you can do that too. Yeah, I mean, 100%. And I think that 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 action or that behavior change will start with the recognition of this hardship, this tragedy that's going on, like actually recognizing it and then recognizing the opportunity that's behind it. Yeah, exactly. It's You're describing something as an opportunity that most people I talk to are like, 
the plane was going to fly anyway. If you talk about like not flying for a bit, they're like, that hardship is too much for me, but it's not a hardship. If it's living by, to, from my perspective, and I have to be open here that when I first decided to go for a year without flying, I was like, that's a hardship. Right. But after having done it, I'm like, what an opportunity that was. Right. And like, what I'm trying to do, and tell me how this sounds to your ears, is that to see behaving consistently with your values with respect to the environment is an opportunity to learn and grow and, and develop yourself. In a leadership context, in my language, it's like to be more like a Mandela or a King or Gandhi or Vakaf Havel. Right. And you're saying there's experiential and there's observational. And is it crazy for me to think of taking on challenges with respect to the environment as something it's experiential on a smaller scale than losing your sight? Totally. I think people can see it as the same opportunity. People who value clean air, clean water, things like that. If you don't value it, I don't know what to say. But if you value not pollution, not you know, having clean air and water and so forth, and you're doing stuff that is contributing to it, this is your opportunity to challenge yourself and see what's important to me and define yourself by your values and living by them as opposed to giving in. Yeah, I mean, and expanding on the experiential learning is like if you've lived in any kind of, you know, modern day community or urban setting, then you've seen trash on the ground. And you might not know how or put the pieces together how that is an epidemic across all communities and urban environments. But then when you add them up and realize the opportunity of picking it up and recycling that trash, that litter that's on the ground and, and then seeing how, and then imagining how that would add up just that one action, it will translate into a big difference. And then disciplining yourself to do things like not get on an airplane, right? You know, I, the argument that the plane is going to take off anyway is an excuse for not disciplining yourself to do what it takes to commit to the bigger vision. And that's it. I mean, you've written, you know, upwards, you know, you're going on 3000 blog posts in a row, you know, over 2,500. That's mm -hmm. discipline. That's you just deciding I'm doing this. It's going to add up and it has, I mean, and now for you, it's like not a big deal, but, Oh, just another blog post, something I do every day. And, you know, picking up that trash, not recycling, not getting on the plane, minimizing your carbon footprint. Those are, you know, the awareness grows in terms of how you can behave and lead in ways that will continue to reduce, um, continue to minimize and continue leadership, continue to make an impact or influence other people to do the same thing. Right. It's, it makes me think of that video, like the, the crazy man dancing on the side of the hill. Yeah. The Seth Godin one. Yeah. It's not Seth Godin, but he used it in his talk, his Ted talk. Yeah. Yep. And there's that guy and everybody's kind of like, Whoa you know, laughing and talking about it. And he just is rocking on, just doing his thing. And then before you know it, everybody's doing it. And, you know, leading by example. Yeah. And is it possible that someone could take on a challenge, someone who believes that someone is polluting or contributing to greenhouse emissions, because those are separate things. And that if they take on this challenge, it's polluting more than they like, and they would like to decrease that, but they don't want to change their life. But they say, look, there's the way that I'm living now, and there's the way I would like to live, and I'm going to have to change some of the, the ways that I'm living to be consistent with the way I'd like to live. 
that's a challenge. Is that, can they, through that, taking on that challenge and resolving that conflict internally, can they learn and grow as much as you have? It's, I mean, I think that that's subjective to the person, Mm -hmm. right? Like they might just feel like they're doing a good deed. That is, I think it's analogous on multiple planes. So like they might feel like I'm contributing to the larger, the greater good. And so, you know, maybe that resonates deeply in their core and they begin to expand on that. And like, how else can I contribute to the greater good? Like what other behaviors can I do Mm -hmm. and, and continue to contribute to the larger, greater good? You know, for me, I'm an emotional person and I can have setbacks or what have you. But what drives me is the opportunity, the chance that I might impact somebody else and have this domino effect that contributes to the greater good. So can they connect those dots and see how every little step matters and continue to expand outside their comfort zone, all in the spirit of the greater good? And the greater good is a metaphor for not just the world, but for the greater good of themselves. I think that's subjective. It's tough to say, is it possible? hundred million zillion percent, but it's subjective to that individual. If they can, it's the same thing as recognizing your potential and taking action on it. It's like, everybody's got that potential, but can they recognize how the steps that they take each day contribute towards their journey of achieving it? So self-awareness, I think, is what it gets down to. If someone is self-aware enough to recognize that doing something like the challenge that you're proposing is bigger than them, and so they can become bigger themselves, if they can recognize that, then yeah, absolutely, they can grow. Again, it gets back to the same question you asked me earlier. is like, do you have to have that kind of hardship in order to to create that kind of life for yourself, that fulfillment, that development? Uh, No, you don't. And the same thing is true in, in this instance, I feel like. So I have to comment something here that we're recording this before I've posted any, any other episodes. So you don't know this, but everyone I talk to has this common theme that I can't help but draw out every time I hear it, which is that effective leaders have an incredible vision about the other people that they're leading, that it's all about them, that you get caught up in whom you're helping. And you were like, yeah, if you're just about yourself, you can get so far. But when it's about the others, it's a really, that's what it really clicks. Yeah. And that, that common theme of the people who are effective in leadership, in leading others, I can't help but see that. I comment on it every time. So I can't help but comment on that. So if I heard you right, taking on a challenge like this, like what I'm proposing for you, and I hope that listeners decide to take on in their way for themselves, is that if they half-ass it or do it without self-awareness, without intent, I guess they could get through and not really go through that much change. But if they commit themselves and say, what is this about? How connected with other people? If they, I mean, is a tool that would give them the ability, if they do it wholeheartedly, that they could reach whatever levels they wanted to? I mean, what, it would lead to other things that would lead to other things, I guess. Totally. That's exactly right. If they can connect the dots between the relationship or how they were able to, you know, commit to this here and commit to the challenge, you know, expand beyond their comfort zone and lead by example in this aspect, that is replicable in every other aspect. And for you to put blocks in front of yourself, you know, why it's not replicable in other areas of your life is just an excuse. And to me, that just sounds like they need to do more of the work on themselves and probably 
it would indicate that they may not be able to satisfy the original challenge. So it's all there for people. Yeah. To me, this is a very, what's the word? Life-affirming, empowering perspective that you don't need. It's not out there. I mean, it helps to have something out there, something material to, to get you started, but it's really internal. It's a, almost a choice. 100%. We always have a choice. Like in the, in the world that you and I live in, we all have a choice. You have a choice to get up and go to work. You have a choice to get out of bed. You have a choice to eat. You may feel like you don't have a choice, but at the end of the day, you do. When it comes down to it, at the end of the day, our life is made up of little choices, and those add up in a big way. Thank you very much. I mean, because I wasn't really sure I was going to go with this conversation before it got started. And let's go to the challenge for you. Let's see what you are able to do with this challenge for yourself. (laughs) I'm excited. (laughs) You've been through a lot, and now here's another challenge. Maybe where you've gone is less than what you have left to grow. Uh, I don't know. I doubt that. Could be. So now's the time when I invite you, if you're interested, to take on a personal challenge to change something. It has to be something new, something, and but it doesn't have to be something that is going to revolutionize the world or you know solve all the problems overnight. It does have to be measurable, and it has to be something that you choose to reduce your global warming impact, to reduce your pollution, to reduce how much you're depleting resources, but something of your choice. Is it, are you up for it? Yeah. Have you thought about it beforehand? I have not. No, I have not. And so I wasn't sure if you were going to propose something or if I needed to propose something for myself. Either way, I'm good. Okay. So I want it to be something that I find that a lot of people, when I talk to them, they, when I talk to them about it, they come up with something and they're like, oh, you know, I've been meaning to do X or Y or Z for a while. And I didn't really think about it. Now this is my chance to do it. So, well, the thing that I have been thinking about for a while is like, uh, I just don't like what plastics are doing to our world. mm -hmm. And minimizing plastics. And so, you know, my wife and I use our water bottles, you know, we have water bottles that we wash and that we use. And so like, that was a big thing, but you know, we haven't made that we bought some of the bags, but we haven't been using them as we should. And I want to, and I would love it if you had something else in mind, but I would love to stop using the grocery bags at the grocery store. You know, in California, they charge you for every plastic bag that you use in the grocery store or or just in general. And I learned that earlier this year. And so that would be one challenge I want to hold myself to. And this is getting back to the awareness thing. It's like the self-awareness. Like I'm not, because I've been so accustomed to the way things go and like just like going with the flow, like this is what it is and this is what's around me and everybody's doing it. So it must be okay, right? No becoming aware of the impact that you have on others, the impact that you have on the environment, the impact that you have on pollution, on your carbon footprint, et cetera. You know, awareness is a huge key. So I want to stop using the plastic grocery bags, but I would also love to know, because you're much more of an expert on this than I, is what other challenge could I do and challenge not just myself, but also my wife with? Well, you wouldn't be the first person to go with no bags. Someone already has also done that one. So if it's challenging to you, then yeah. And it's obviously a measurable difference because using less is using less. It's right. That's using less. And my experience tells me that if you start doing it, you will discover other things, whether anyone tells you or not. And there are things that right now you're not realizing because you're thinking about the bottles and the bags, 
So as long as those are top of mind, you're not getting to the lower stuff. And after you're comfortable, like yesterday I had to meet a friend and I knew that we were going to go to a store. I needed to buy some cashews or I wanted to buy some cashews. So I brought with me my little container that I put the cashews in. And I thought, oh, as long as I'm in the store, I might buy something else. So I stuffed a couple of bags in my pocket to bring with me. And I didn't end up getting anything, but I knew like, it's for me, it's just, I don't think about it. It's just, oh, right. I'm going to the store, bring extra bags just in case. And those yep. bags I get, how do I have all these bags? Because other people bring their bags to my place. Ugh. And I get stuck with their garbage. <laughs> but once it's there, I'm going to use it. Yes. But not, I try to, I do my best to decrease people. Like I try to get people not to bring it in the first place. In any case. It reminds me of like brushing your teeth or bringing your keys or taking your wallet or putting on a watch, like, you know, having your cell phone. These are just things that people do. And, you know, so I know that it's possible. That's why I think the challenge is such a beautiful thing, because if we can create this behavior change and turn that into habits again over time, it's not going to make that big of a difference in a week. But in a year, in a decade, in a lifetime, you know, as you suggested, as the awareness grows, it can be profound. Yeah. And you're talking about at your level, and I'm the point of the podcast is to get it to a broad, like not just affecting yourself, but others and others hopefully listening to this thinking, wow, he's been through a big change and I can just, you know, not get bags and I might be able to have the kind of change in my life that he had in his life. And maybe that'll spread. I mean, that's the goal and to have, you know, big celebrities on and so forth and even bigger than you. <laughs> oh dear, and, I'm nobody. <laughs> and uh, it says the guy preparing for his TEDx talk. <laughs> <laughs> So I can give you ideas for other things. I mean, yeah. but I think you'll get to them anyway. I mean, you're in Texas right now? You were in Texas. No, I'm oh, the, the baseball is in Texas. You're where? Yep. Phoenix. Oh, so I was going to suggest using air conditioning less. I don't know if it's mm-hmm. like over 100 degrees there now, but that's one thing. Driving less, air conditioning less, eating less meat. These are some of the ones that people have picked. And, but I can also tell you, oh, and another is like people picking up garbage off the street and putting it in the trash can. And the effect is really, it's the mindset change that happens. We're going to have a second conversation. And I predict that you're going to tell me things of what happened when you, like the first couple of times, you had to force yourself to think about it. But then once it was automatic, it led you to think of, oh, what else I could do? Or like, and that's the sort of stuff. I mentioned a few things, pick and choose among them. I think I recommend just pick one thing now, as much as I'd like to suggest lots of things, pick one and then others. So make sure you don't drop that ball. And if other ones come up, do those things too. I would like to, too, also challenge other people is that, you know, if you're thinking about moving, why not move as close as possibly can to where you work? I know that it's really big trend right now is I thought it was so ridiculous that this one individual flies every day, you know, a couple hours to work. I think it's like, you know, they live in LA and they fly to San Francisco to work. And I thought how ludicrous that is. But, you know, there's literally zero lights. I work from home. You know, I'm in Phoenix, right? But as I said at the beginning of the podcast, I work for a nonprofit based in New York, right? I work at home remotely. My wife works literally two-tenths of a mile from where she works. You know, why not figure out how to get, minimize the distance between you and the things that you do the most often? And probably not too many above or happen more often than you going to work. Yeah, actually, this is actually a challenge that one in the guy that I interviewed yesterday, he and his new wife, they got engaged and married in the past month or two, and they're moving to a new city. 
and they decided that they're not going to get, they're going to get rid of both of their cars. And the city is uh, Antwerp, I think, in Belgium. And they're just going to go no cars. He's had a car since he was 16 years old. And they were on the fence. And he's using this challenge as their opportunity to decide whether they're going to get, go down to one car or zero. And they're going to go down to zero. I love it. So he's taking your advice even before you said it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. So now I want to see, I want to schedule. How long do you think you have to go before? It sounds like you want to do this forever. Yes. How long do you think it'll be before you have the next conversation will be substantive and you'll have stuff to share? The bags are going to happen this week. We're going to, I'm making that a priority at the time of this recording. I believe it's Friday. So this weekend, we're going to go to the store and get the bags. And that's it. I think I'm pretty like sure. Like canvas bags, you mean? Yep. Canvas uh-huh. bags. And uh, so we're going to buy enough so that we have enough for our groceries. And then we're going to buy extra so that we just have them because it's better to have it than need it and not have it, especially when we're talking about plastics and minimizing that. So we're going to do that. I am going to figure out how to make the other small changes. Like we're really conscious about recycling anyway. You know, we have our, our stuff like that, but there's more and it's yet to be determined, but I'm super excited about our next conversation and uh, updating with the other things I'm more self-aware about. Cool. Do you think it'll be about two weeks, three weeks, a month, one week? How long, like when should we schedule the next call? Oh yeah. Why don't we do one month and we can see like how much I can become more aware about myself and the imprint that I'm creating and how I can minimize that and then take action on it. I think a month is a really good point of reference. Yeah. Let's do that. I'll send you a calendar invitation for this time four weeks from now. Beautiful. So Friday, it'll be Friday, September 1st. Awesome. All right. So you'll get the calendar invitation after we hang up. Cool. I can't wait to hear it because I think you have a lot of experience in like using these challenges to grow and yes. you've got your wife in on it. So she's yes. not in this conversation right now. So one of the things I've learned that I didn't expect is that one of the big challenges is the interface between the person changing him or herself and their community. If their community oh, yeah. norm is we don't care about pollution and suddenly someone starts caring, that friction is big. It's huge. Yeah. And it's bigger often. Well, it depends on the situation. So it sounds like you got a comrade at arms. I do. Yeah. You still nonetheless are going to have your general community. I'm very interested to hear how it goes. I live in an apartment complex. And so I'm going to you know try to go a step above. And our property manager is phenomenal. Mary, she's just fantastic. And so I'm going to let her know what I'm doing and see if we can get a bulletin up and invite the entire community to do the same thing. This is going to be big. You don't go small on this stuff. Well, no, no. Go big, go home, baby. Before wrapping up, is there anything, anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up? Great question. No, I mean, I'm so grateful for being here. Again, you know, I look up to you. I admire you. I'm so grateful that podcasting has brought us together and even more grateful that you're using this medium to change the world. This medium being you, I like you're the one who's doing the work here. (laughs) Well, yes, but other people are tuning in. Right. And I think the essence behind what you're doing is getting the world to make that one change and, uh, you know, take action. And as we've talked about on this call, it's, it's like one person might not seem like a lot, but this is going to hit a lot more than one people. And it's the domino effect. I don't think it's quantifiable, but I would love, I would love to like hypothesize like how much 
based on the download numbers and the growing audience, how many people are taking more action and becoming more self-aware about their carbon footprint and doing something about it. That's what's so exciting to me. Yeah, I really, I can't wait to see. I hope it gets really big and I hope it has a big effect. I mean, there's billions of people that could all lower their emissions and things and pollute less and there's a lot of plastic in the world. Yes. Hopefully a little bit less as a result of this. Word. (laughs) (laughs) On that, I'll close and uh, look forward to talking again soon. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate you so much. Me too. Me, you. Is it obvious that Tanner is going to have fun with his challenge? I love how Tanner has integrated his life. That is, every part of it fits together. What he learns in one area, he applies everywhere. So what he's been able to make in sports, what he's been able to make as a speaker and all these different things, he applies to solving problems in all sorts of areas. Having found joy in the challenging places, he does it everywhere. Not just find joy in things, but he creates joy in things. That's what I hear from him. I mean, can you hear how he finds and creates that joy? So I can't wait to hear how his challenge goes. And I look forward to see you guys next time. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference. And living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.